This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello? It's like a, a fox snatching a rabbit all over in a matter of seconds. The man in the car would have passed the two girls and then should have passed in that day. I drove all over the place looking for her. I'm not exactly proud of the way I feel towards young girls, but there's other part that says, you like it, go on. I've just been to Great Moor House in Exeter, home of the Devon Records Centre. The mechanical noise you could hear was me operating the microfilm machine on which I could see archived copies of the local newspapers. The records library is the only place which holds this treasure trove of information and is the obvious place for me to start when considering how the media covered the disappearance of Jeanette. I'm back home now and I've arranged in front of me on this table a selection of those photocopied archives from the records library. The Exeter Express and Echo alone appeared to have a story of one sort or another about Jeanette on its front page every day for at least a month. After that I stopped counting. It's so easy to get sidetracked by other material. I even started looking at the TV listings to find out what was on the telly at the time. This was the age of the American cop serials, Starsky and Hutch, Kojak, etc. And British variety shows like Seaside Special were still clinging on to popularity. Scrolling through the pages, I can see a familiar mix of community news, advertisements, items for sale. They've always formed the ballast for local newspapers beyond the headlines and the hard news at the front of the paper. The world I'm looking at in these newspaper cuttings is familiar to me because I I was a boy when Jeanette went missing. But it's also distant. Print media was king. There were many more newspapers sold, more editions to produce each day, more work in many ways for the journalist. But also, due to the limits of technology, an inevitable delay in getting the news to the wider world. But let's not forget, on the other side of the coin, the sense of community and connection to the local paper was stronger. Jeanette, remember, was delivering newspapers in Aylesbeer at the time she disappeared. Her friends, Tracy and Maggie, had taken one from her and were reading it as they strolled behind her. Newspapers, in many ways, are central to this whole tragic episode. And that is what I want to talk about in this podcast, how the press covered the story. 1978 is pre-digital, pre-24-hour news, pre-home computer, pre-internet. The story of Jeanette's disappearance is set out before me in these archives and it's written in ink. 
hot off the press. I've come to the home of Richard Lapas. Richard is a freelance photographer who was working for a news agency in Devon at the time Jeanette disappeared in August 1978. He's agreed to talk to me about the press coverage at the time. And suddenly, this situation came out of the blue. Um, I had a call Saturday evening to say there's going to be there's a, there's a girl disappeared in a lane in East Devon and they're going to um, do a reconstruction. So the picture that you've seen in the book... The picture that Richard refers to has become synonymous with the Jeanette Tate investigation. It shows her bicycle on its side in Withan Lane at the spot where she disappeared. Let's picture the scene. A 13-year-old girl has gone missing on a Saturday afternoon and a major police incident has been declared. Jeanette's family is looking for her along the lanes. Police have begun a search of the immediate area. A helicopter flies overhead, roaring with urgency. Roger and the most senior detective in Devon and Cornwall, Proven Sharp, have assessed the situation and come quickly to the conclusion that what they need is maximum press engagement. Roger gets on the phone and alerts his contacts. Into the maelstrom steps the press. Local journalists, national reporters, broadcasters, correspondents, hacks, scribes, scriveners, call them what you will. A story was breaking, a drama unfolding. It was desirable to get as many witnesses as possible, as soon as possible, and that's why we decided to put the bike back in the lane, spread the papers around. Um, there's a little bit of mythology involved in that it was alleged the rear wheel was still spinning, but um, that, that, was, um, that was journalistic licence. Roger positioned the bike almost identically to how it was found. He would have got that information from a police officer who had interviewed the two girls, Tracy Platt and Maggie Heavey. We did the pictures, but by the time it had hit the papers on Monday morning, the whole world and his uncle were in Devon. The London staff people came down. There were dozens and dozens and dozens of people. Newspapers, magazines, television, radio. It was just, you know, Aylesbury was under siege. So, the, so this iconic photo, that's the word which, which you've taken, is there to demonstrate... It's as if you're... You're reaching the scene moments after Jeanette has suddenly yeah. vanished. Um, it's, it, it, it's an illustration that was the only evidence of where Jeanette was, uh, you know, or what had happened. The, the bike in the lane with the newspapers scattered around. The story as it appeared on the front page of the Express and Echo on August 21st, 1978. I've chosen this paper because, as mentioned previously, it is the paper most closely associated with Jeanette's case, the local newspaper for the city of Exeter, and it is reflected in the headline, Echo News Girl Vanishes. Let's take a closer look. 
I want to give you an idea of how the paper covered the story, so I'll explain what I can see. I won't read you the whole thing, because there must be, I don't know, two or three thousand words on the front page alone, but I just want to give you a sense of the drama in words and pictures her disappearance created. Essentially, the tale consumes the front page and is told from seven or eight different angles. The lead story beneath the headline is the most prominent, of course, but there are a number of satellite articles orbiting around. I'll give you a flavour of those sub-headlines and articles. Here's one. Fears grow in massive search for 13-year-old Jeanette. Super smiling and happy. That's describing her character. Anxiety shows on the faces of the searchers. Missing paper girl alerted the village. And that's a story about a village man who complains when his paper is late, only to join the search after ringing up to complain. Police hunt for two Arab men. Obviously a line of inquiry that was later ruled out. The reasons, no doubt, lost in time. Friends joked with missing girl. That's an interesting panel, giving the account of Tracy and Maggie. They explain how they spoke with Jeanette, took a paper from her and strolled along reading it before finding her bike. When Maggie rode the bike back to Aylesbere, she says she meets Jeanette's boyfriend, 16-year-old Tony Hammond, and John Bathard, who was the regular delivery boy, the person Jeanette was standing in for, if you'll recall. They both joined the search. If I cast my eyes down from the masthead of the paper, there's a panel of photos taken by the Echo's long-standing photographer, John Fuchs, showing police at the reconstruction. There are more inside, showing detectives Proven Sharp and Peter Barter looking at a map. The photos taken by our friend Richard Lapas, remember, would not have appeared in the Echo. They were destined for the national newspapers. I'll read you a little of the lead story. It begins, Another massive search by police, including divers, began on day three of the hunt for five feet tall Jeanette Tate, amid growing concern for her safety. 70 uniformed policemen and 50 detectives were joined by police divers and a six-strong mounted section of the Avon and Somerset Constabulary. The divers planned to search gravel pits and ponds around Aylesbury Common and other moorland space. This then was the first time the newspapers were really able to get their teeth into the story. Remember, Jeanette had gone missing at 3.35pm on Saturday. The BBC regional TV news bulletins may have covered the story sometime over the weekend, but essentially, and even allowing for Roger's swift media call to arms, it was a full 38 hours before the story appeared in detail in print. And we can see in just those opening three paragraphs of the lead story, can't we? The sense of time already having passed. We are already into day three, and it's mixed with a desperate urgency for clues. And at the very centre of it all is Jeanette's photo, 
It's the one police used in the posters, taken a couple of years before, I believe, and the only one available in the initial stages. Jeanette's hair is short and her smiling face looks out at the reader. The caption reads, vanished into thin air. Jeanette had indeed been lost to sight, but for the next few weeks, her photo was everywhere. Jeanette had vanished. It was a typical, it was typical, it was a gone girl Here's Roger Busby again. She'd vanished. Um, There was very little to indicate what had actually happened. Uh, There was a time frame of about 15 minutes from when um, her two friends who she'd met in the lane uh, had, uh, she'd left them and they'd walked up to where the bike was, was a period of about 15 minutes. So in that time frame, something had happened and uh, it was um, obviously desirable to get as much information on that period of time as possible. The, um, the Nationals are obviously interested because it, it was so, um, so dramatic and so mysterious that it, 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 developed, um, it developed the National story straight away. I mean, the Nationals were all there, people like Mike Charleston, uh, he was the express man down here. All the Nationals had correspondence down here, and of course they all turned out almost immediately. I have in front of me, and I've laid them out in order, copies of the Express and Echo for the first ten days or so, and I want to take you briefly through some of the headlines and articles from the Tuesday to the Saturday. I think this gives us the best insight into how the media covered the drama, and also how the police investigation was shaping up during that intense first week. So, Tuesday the 22nd, the headline is Spare Five Minutes Today for Jeanette. It's a straightforward public appeal. If you were in Aylesbury on August 19th, what did you see? There is also coverage of a second police reconstruction in Withan Lane. This is mainly pictures from the scene, with a local girl called Amanda standing in for Jeanette and riding her bicycle for the cameras. She is described as bearing a striking resemblance to Jeanette, hence her use in this reconstruction. In the same edition, John Tate talks about the possibility that Jeanette has been kidnapped. He pleads with whoever may have taken her to get in touch. This interview probably came from a press conference organised by police. During this period, police were holding two conferences a day from the commandeered village hall, which was acting as the major incident room. John Tate's experience with the media was mixed. During this time, he was a man in demand. The press would have wanted to know what he was thinking, what he was doing every day. I can't remember um, when it was, but I know it was quite so long. Um, we had uh, television, or two television crews in the garden to start with, um, and they were fighting on who was going to interview us, you know, and um, they were quite unbelievable. Wednesday 23rd, police have what they describe as their best lead yet, and are trying to trace a grey mini seen speeding away from the village. Thursday 24th, the grey mini 
has been eliminated from the inquiry after a local man comes forward to say it was him. There is no let-up in the coverage and at least the grey mini can be eliminated from the police inquiry. Friday 25th, the Express and Echo offers a reward of £1,000 for information leading to the safe return of Jeanette. I know from talking to John Tate that the family found this gesture from the paper incredibly generous and touching because they could not afford that kind of money. Saturday 26th, the headline reads, Police throw cordon round the village in Jeanette Hunt. It says everyone entering or leaving the village by vehicle or foot is being stop-checked and questioned. It could be asked whether this served much of a purpose so long after the event. The focus was on holidaymakers, presumably those who had been around for seven days, had not read any of the local news and were now heading home. It is described as an information-gathering exercise. The reward, incidentally, now stands at £3,000. It is Monday, August 28th, nine days after Jeanette went missing, before an appeal is launched to identify the man in the deep maroon-coloured car. As we heard in a previous podcast, Mrs Matilda Rogers, a policeman's wife from Hull, on holiday in Devon, says she saw a man driving a car of that colour in Witham Lane at about the time Jeanette went missing. The maroon car appeal carries a photo fit of the man based on her description. The next day it is reported that more than a 100 calls have been received from all over the country, some saying that they think they know the dark-haired man or had seen a car identical to that in Withan Lane. The, the, the main problem with generating the, the, the publicity to produce information was that we, gen, we received an awful lot of information. And of course, as it flooded into the incident room, the paper mountain grew larger and larger. And one of the problems then, of course, was that if there was a vital nugget of information somewhere, it could get lost in the paperwork. Because again, there was, it, it was a manual process for, for, for processing information. It was all done on a card index system. It was all done by um, statement readers, reading statements and cross-referencing things. And then the, the um, senior investigator would go through it to see if there were actions he could produce from it. So the more information you generated, the bigger the paper mountain. And of course, in the end, if you were not very careful, you could just get submerged in it. I look at these papers and the flow and the spread of stories is like a huge wave crashing on the page. It's slightly chaotic, almost feverish. Any one of these stories could hold the clue as to what happened to Jeanette. It feels tantalisingly close and every day's newspaper seems to bring something new worth investigating. We can say, therefore, that this saturation coverage does take the police investigation into new directions. In terms of getting the message out into the world, it is a success. The police and the press seem to feed off each other, almost fueling the coverage day after day until the momentum becomes impossible to maintain.
Here's an interesting story from the Express and Echo on August the 30th, 1978. Rector begins phone vigil. A clergyman today began a 24-hour vigil waiting for a telephone call which he hopes will clear up the Jeanette Tate mystery. The Reverend Dennis Large, Rector of Aylesbeer, is appealing to the person responsible for 13-year-old Jeanette's disappearance at Aylesbeer 11 days ago to phone him anonymously. She was in his choir and he staged um, a sort of... Here's Mike Charleston of the Daily Express. Um, and he staged a Catholic-type confessional in which he waited by his phone for 24 hours on the basis that uh, he wouldn't pass any information on to the police about who might have done it or, or, or what. Um, but he would tell the parents what anybody wanted to tell them in absolute secrecy and he would never reveal their names. What one did get it was a, a vast number um, of calls from people that it might be too unkind to call them nutcases, but... Here, Dennis Large talks about the phone line. Certainly people who were sold on the, the psychic approach, uh, the, the, the pendulum swingers and the, the, the mediums and all that kind of thing, who all claimed to know with absolute certainty where Jeanette could be found. And there, there was an end. He sat for 24 hours and he got, uh, how many calls? Afterwards. 600, 600 phone calls from people and not a single bloody thing came out of it as being useful. In this podcast, I've tried to demonstrate how police used the media to get the message out there that Jeanette was missing. With little evidence from the scene, it was their best shot at finding her before it was too late. In return, the press, who descended on Aylesbeer as if in a feeding frenzy, used the police to fill page after page of their product. But the momentum could not last forever. There is one last article I want to tell you about from Saturday, August 26th. It states... The public is being asked to find Jeanette Tate by searching for her on Woodbury Common on Sunday. The article states that hundreds of people are expected to attend the search of 15 square miles of countryside. I would greatly appreciate as much help as possible from the public, says Detective Superintendent Eric Rundle. In the event, Eric Rundle got many more people than he bargained for, because thousands of people turned up to search for Jeanette, an indication of just how her disappearance had captured the public mood. In many ways, it would mark the high point of the public appeal in the summer of 1978. Looking back, we can see it as an almost desperate last roll of the dice, a mobilising of police, press and public in one organised force. Jeanette's army, as it was dubbed in the press. Into the vacuum arrived the conspiracy theorists, psychics and paranormal fantasists who claimed to know the truth about what had really happened to Jeanette. 
just as it seemed that fact and reason would be permanently replaced by conspiracy and fantasy, or misinformation and faded memory, the investigation was rejuvenated. Almost 30 years after Jeanette went missing, a new suspect was in the frame. His name was Robert Black, a man whose heinous crimes were rooted very much in the real world. The Disappearance of Jeanette Tate is a Devon Live production written and hosted by Paul Greaves, edited by John Bishop, with special thanks to Nick Irving and Roger Busby and Devon Live editor Rich Booth.